Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacey Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of the Paleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Sarah, I am a little bit geeking out almost to the level that you geek out on a regular Tuesday (laughs) about our guest today. I also am ridiculously excited. We uh, teased our guests a little bit last week, Um, but uh, we have, I believe we can call him the king of paleo, believe. Yeah. I mean, joining us shortly, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty amazing. I was trying to come up with a, a better, like funny joke name for him, but he is the one that's good at funny jokes. That's true. <laughs> and uh, like really weird analogies that you look, whoa, okay. So uh, maybe maybe an apology in advance to our listeners. Should an analogy not seem kid appropriate to you and you are listening to these podcast episodes with your children playing in the background, we apologize in advance. Well, now I feel like you've warned people and you might scare them away, but... Mm. I I would say that the podcasts will always be family friendly, Um, but sometimes, you know, it's it's a PG-13 event. Four words strung together will just seem like, yes, (laughs) PG-13. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm super crazy excited. Uh, Do we do we want to jump in? What? You got you got some news to share before we bring our our guest on. Well, I was just going to share a little bit about we we're having it's my kids' spring break this week, and um, it's sort of like the third or fourth um, school break they've had in a row where we haven't you know had funds to go do anything super cool, travel or anything like that. So we've really embraced this sort of explore your city idea. And um, this break, we we had lots of things around the house, right? Spring cleaning type stuff, some gardening and stuff to catch up with. But we were like, let's let's set a goal of doing two things that are new around here that we've never done before. So a couple of days ago, we went uh, to a park that we go to all the time, but this park has a creek behind it and we've never kind of gone to that side. So we went and we actually ended up wading a couple hundred feet up the creek and finding this deserted bank where there was no people and just hung out there and the kids played in the creek for like an hour and a half. And then we discovered a giant snake and it was like super, super scary because I didn't know what kind of snake it was. And it probably wasn't poisonous, but it was like four feet long. So it was like kind of a big deal. So we, it was like this super fun adventure. And then um, today we went on a nearly six mile hike um, up a local, they call it a mountain, although my, my 10 year old insists that it has to be at least 2000 feet high to qualify as a mountain. And its peak is at, you know, 18 and a half hundred feet or something like that. So it's, it's just falls slightly short of a technical de- designation. Um, but we did a, a uh, you know, 5.8 mile loop that involved hitting 
the main peak, the secondary peak and the tertiary peak of this and sort of following the ridge down and then going nearly entirely around the mountain. And it took us nearly four hours. Um, I, I feel like I have no glycogen left in my leg muscles at all. <laughs> this was super, it was super dense, but it was by far, by easily double or triple the hardest and longest hike my girls have ever done. And I said, you know, I think you guys are 10 and seven now. I am not piggybacking you. I will carry all the water. And that is my contribution of carrying. I am not carrying you. I'm not carrying your jackets. I like, I, if, if you break a leg, I might just leave you. I'm not, I might not even carry you then. So like, don't fall off of anything. And this is how it's going to go. And they were such troopers. And it was so beautiful because we had such intense storms yesterday. So there was all of these little streams where there's never streams and there, um, you know, there's like no stream bed, but there's water running. So often the path would sort of turn into a creek bed, but that means there was waterfalls and it was just, I mean, and it was quite cold, but we had layers. We were okay. And it was just a, a beautiful, beautiful hike. And just one of those, like, it was just the three of us girls. It was one of those really amazing times. And then on the drive home, you know, like after nearly four hours and the girls were like, when, when can we do something like that again? Like they want to take up mountaineering now. Like that's not just hiking, but like, when can we go hike up a mountain where we have to pack all of our camping gear on our backs. Like that's now a hobby that they're interested in having. And I'm, I'm super excited about it. Like they've kind of caught the hiking bug. That's awesome. Yeah. I, it's interesting to me that sometimes my boys will get really into it and sometimes they'll just be whiny and it'll feel like you're literally dragging them. Um, (laughs) But I, I really, really, enjoy when they connect to their environment. And I'm sure, um, cause for listeners, they don't realize this, but you just had like major storms yesterday. I always find that the nature and environment is so stunning after a storm. So I'm yeah. sure it was a nice time. To- oh, we just, we had, um, it, it rained on us a little bit, but it was, you know, short lived. So we didn't get too wet and this, but the skies were just amazing. Um, you know, it's, full, you know, spring here, but not all of the trees has finished leafing out. So we got really amazing views where in two more weeks, there won't be any more because there'll be too many leaves in the trees. Um, so it was, it was, uh, we, we heard a tree fall. That was a little scary. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was such a great time. Um, I did, I did bribe them with Oreo cookies the last mile and a half. <laughs> Gluten-free, dairy-free Oreo cookies. So they weren't really Oreos, but they were, they were sand- sandwich cookies. Sandwich cookies. Yes. Whatever's the closest thing to to Oreos. Um, so the last the last mile and a half was uh, <laughs> we were all tired. I'm surprised none of us face planted. Like I'm surprised <laughs> I didn't face plant because that was it was it was about um, the the trail we took had about 1300 feet vertical. So it was a lot of, you know, pretty steep hills and navigating these paths that were, you know, full of boulders and rocks. And, um, it was slow going. I mean, we averaged 40 minutes per mile. (laughs) So, so that was, and, and not entirely because it was, you know, a 10 year old and seven year olds like leg length. It had a lot to do with just how much of that was steep hills and, you know, tricky footing and stuff like that. But, um, 
Yeah, no, it was it was a really phenomenal experience. And so it's, uh, you know, it's when I when I do things like that with my kids that I kind of feel like, oh, I'm doing a good job as a parent. I'm having one of those like, I mean, it really probably has absolutely no bearing on what kind of adults they'll be. But in the moment right now, I feel like I've given them a really wonderful experience. And, you know, I'm going <laughs> to get as much mileage out of that as I can. Yeah. So for my kids spring break, which is actually next week, we're cleaning the house. So you can just tell your girls, like, while we did a little bit of spring cleaning, I'm not making you get on your hands and knees and scrub the floor and paint the trim and clean your room in order for us to sell it. So they can be excited about that. They should be excited because really the a level of, of organizing tasks that happen around the house were like a tenth the scale of preparing a house to sell. So they should feel spoiled, really. So Completely I'm spoiled. just I'm just going to state for the record that your gluten-free sandwich cookie at the end of a six-mile hike is um, paling in comparison to the failure as a parent that I feel, which is not true. <laughs> I don't actually feel like a failure. Um, to the things that our family has been eating. And what's interesting is being able to find so many options that we don't need to cook because, um, as you know, cooking an elaborate meal for a large family and keeping a kitchen spotless do not go hand in no, hand. Those are not compatible. Not compatible. So, um, we, you know, we've been coming up with interesting ideas for eating and for lunch packing. I, I shared Wesley's lunch on social media earlier this week, um, which, you know, I thought of Carissa and I, I tagged it no cook paleo. <laughs> like our lives are basically no cook paleo right now. <laughs> um, and you know, it's not entirely paleo, but I would say that we're eating more, you know, salad-based meals and stuff like that than mm -hmm. I think we would if we were cooking in the kitchen, which is interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hope to touch base with everybody in the near future and say, whew, that's over. Um, but I'm, I, I'm not, I can't hold my breath or cross my fingers tight enough. Um, I, Having this is my first time selling a house and having three small children who are all boys um, and finding the amount of Sharpie on walls that I found as we prepared to sell our home. <laughs> Let's just all take a deep breath. Um, yeah. Anyway, we have an exciting, super exciting guest and podcast to get to. So I'm going to jump in. Yeah. So I think everyone's probably already figured out, probably because they like downloaded this episode on iTunes and it said something like Rob Wolf in the title. And then we've been all like, like coy about KG it. Coy about like who our guest is. And everyone's like, no, I saw Rob Wolf in the title. That's why I'm listening to this episode. Bring Rob on already. They're like fast forwarding now and they're trying to figure out like exactly when Rob's going to join the podcast, um, which we'll just, we'll just have to put it like a timestamp in the show notes, skip over the intro and go to minute 12. <laughs> there's Rob. Um, but yeah, we are super excited to have the King of Paleo, uh, joining us today. He has, um, he has been such an important voice in the Paleo community for such a long time. Um, and he is, um, celebrating his, the, the release of his latest book, which is called Wired to Eat, which is a phenomenal resource. I've been really enjoying reading this. It is just so it's, it's, 
what I love about it is it's not just another paleo book and it's really advancing the entire conversation. It's going to provide really useful, um, you know, thought provoking, but also like practical tools for everybody in this community. So, um, you know, I'm plugging it now so I don't embarrass him when he comes on. Um, but it's, it's really a phenomenal book. So I highly recommend going out and getting it. I'm sure it's in bookstores all over the place, but we'll also have links in our show notes, um, that are affiliate links through Amazon. So, uh, if you don't mind taking the extra time to go to our show notes and click on those links, it helps support us. So thanks in advance for that. Um, but definitely, definitely a recommended book. Welcome, Rob Wolf, back to the Paleo View. I thought that maybe uh, stooping to our level once would have done it for you, but we're excited to have you back on the show finally. Well, it's a huge honor to be here, although it is part of my parole uh, stipulation. So uh, thank you guys for accommodating. <laughs> I mean, we've been trying to poach your six listeners and add them to our six listeners for years now. So I think we finally merged. Uh, all of my listeners at this point are bots, so you can you can have them. And there's probably even a crossover, so maybe 10 total. Yeah, there's actually only three listeners there total, and and those are bots. So, yeah, yeah, it's all kind of a wash at this point. So before I forget, for people who might be living in a cave, yuck, yuck, yuck. Um, uh, If you have not been to Rob's website, robwolf.com, two Bs, no E on Wolf. Um, And of course, we'll have links in show notes. Um, Make sure to check it out. I remember your site when it was a cartoon scientist, Rob, is like way back in the day. And I was so sad when you switched it over to being professional looking. But it's very professional. People should definitely check it out, as well as we're going to talk a bit about your new book, Wired to Eat. Um, And I saw recently that you just made New York Times again. So congratulations on... Thank you. Thank you. A clear sign that there's no quality control or standards in the world. <laughs> Thank you. Hence, you're being on the show today as well. I mean. Exactly. This yeah. is just continues the trend. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you, I don't think you understand like how many of our regular listeners are like girl fanning in their cars on their morning commute right now because you're on our show. So they, just they saying. Need to, they need to articulate that to my wife because she is incredibly unimpressed with me. Had she not met me at at Chico State, where there's five women for every two men, um, I, I, you know, I would still be living under a bridge somewhere. So, yeah. So you heard that, ladies. Uh, I believe you can email Rob directly at. No, I'm joking. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the genesis of Wired to Eat because. I remember, and I'm sure we might have talked about it on the show, there was that scientific paper a few years back that looked at insulin responses and blood glucose responses um, in a variety of different people eating different things and really showed that like, in one person, a banana might raise their blood sugar higher than ice cream and another person could do, you know, a cookie would be better than an apple. And then for like most people, it made more sense, but that there was you know, clearly some muddy waters in terms of how individuals respond to different types of carbohydrates. And I kind of feel like as as I've been, you know, flipping through your book, I kind of felt like I feel like this study was probably the like 
hey, wait a second, there's a there's a, a really big important story to tell here. Is that? Yeah, that's spot on. And, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, I, I, I do similar to you, like I'm on a couple of different research groups and I get papers all the time. And um, you know what? Backing up even a, a, a little bit more, um, we moved to Reno, Nevada five, almost six years ago. And we were in town, I don't know, like three weeks. And a guy called me and he identified himself as Greeny and said that he was part of a medical clinic and wanted me to come down and check out what they had happening. And so I went down to the clinic and walked in and lo and behold, there were copies of my books and Lauren Cordain's books in there. And I, I, it was like entering bizarro world or something, you know, usually mainstream medical clinics, you know, gather up paleo ancestral health books and burn them or hide them or what have <laughs> you. But uh, Greeny ended up being a, a now retired but formerly quite famous orthopedic surgeon named Dr. Jim Greenwald. And he had just finished spearheading a two-year pilot study with the Reno Police, Reno Fire Department, where they found 35 people at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. This based off their health risk assessment and blood work, uh, which included some really nifty advanced testing with, with uh, lipoprotein uh, quantification and some interesting kind of algorithmic sorting and all that type of stuff. And based off the changes in the blood work and the health risk assessment parameters that, that happened when they put these folks on a paleo diet, modified their sleep and exercise, it's estimated that that pilot study alone saved the city of Reno $22 million with a 33 to 1 return on investment. Wow. And I, I was just kind of jaw dropped off this thing, you know, like I you guys have seen the evolution of this whole process. You know, there there was a there was a time when the notion that, uh, uh, you know, some sort of dietary intervention could affect things like GI problems or or even more profoundly autoimmunity was just that was nutcase stuff like you, you're a crazy person suggesting that. And it's still clearly not mainstream. But, man, we have made so much you know progress in that regard. And there are but, some new scientific studies that are going to be coming out like oh, the summer, you, early fall. Yeah, I mean, we're really gonna, impressive. Yeah, we're going to learn more about that story in the next, you know, five years than what we knew in the previous 50 years. You know, I mean, it's it's really, really cool. But this it, what it did for me, it was kind of like a giant wet fish slapped upside the head. It's like, wow, OK, this stuff really works. I'm not a crazy person. You know, there's some really profound stuff here. But at the same time, you know, the. The paleo diet concept itself uh, has kind of gotten written into stone and turned into religious dogma. And, and it's understandable in some ways because you have somebody who's really sick. They implement one of these protocols and they get better and they're like the most, you know, crazy over the top converted person that you could ever find. And there's some but there's some kind of downsides to it, like it ends up off selling some other people, the, the media and academia still you know, pretty much portray the whole caveman deal as, as the primary motif. And so, you know, I really wasn't sure if I was going to do a second book and I didn't want to do, you, you know, God bless him, but Barry Sears, you know, it's like the, the string bean zone, the green bean zone, the soybean zone, you know, <laughs> I, I just couldn't do that type of like a, a rinse, lather, repeat recycling. But I also, in the back of my head, I was thinking, man, this, this paleo diet concept is really powerful. And there's a, a super important story here and then I think about three years ago, I, a paper on brain evolution and omnivores real dilemma made it across my my inbox. And it was just amazing. It, it really tackled this whole story from the neuroregulation of appetite. It was looking at optimum foraging strategy, you know, that we are 
fundamentally every organism on the planet that moves to get its nutrition, you need to get more calories and nutrition out of your environment than what you burn obtaining it or you're going to die. And if that's the truth, then food is a survival-driven mechanism which exists in the deep ancient parts of the brain and, you know, there are really powerful triggers that are woven into that whole process. And so if you look at the way that we were wired at one time and then the way that we live today, we live in, in virtual infinite food options. We can order food to our front door, pop it in a microwave, eat it. It, it comes in an almost infinite variety of flavors and palate options. And so you shouldn't be surprised at all if you are completely hamstrung by the, the process of, of trying to decouple yourself from the, the modern food environment. And so this paper was really cool. It was interesting because it was so scientific and technical on the one hand, but it was also like so empathic and, and really made this case that it's not your fault. Like you can't blame yourself for struggling in the modern environment. It doesn't suggest that you just roll over and die, but you know, it was interesting. It was such an interesting balance of, of empathy and also really, really phenomenal science. And so that was another piece that really got me thinking. And I did that Palo FX talk now almost three years ago. But then the, that Weitzman Institute paper that you mentioned on personalized nutrition, that came out, I, I think, two, two and a half years ago now. And that just totally blew my hair back because like you you mentioned, you know, there was just massive variation from person to person and how they responded to various foods. And what was interesting is that it appeared that if you kept your blood glucose response within certain parameters, then your gut microbiota tended to shift towards a healthier kind of profile. And if the blood sugar levels kind of swung too high, too high, too low, then you tended to see the gut microbiota shift to what we generally accept as being a more inflammatory and unhealthy profile. And so this thing, again, to your point, like that thing really was the impetus for me that I, I was like, okay, I've got a really important story to tell because we know that this ancestral health template is incredibly powerful, but I wanted to couch it from that, that perspective of the neuroregulation of appetite and really make the case that it's not your fault. Like if you've struggled with this stuff, if you think dietary and lifestyle change is difficult, you are right. And it's because the whole world we live in has been engineered to essentially entrap you. Uh, but we have ways to to help you extract yourself from that. And then this uh, personalized nutrition piece really made a, a strong case that although we we definitely need to start with general principles, you know, like eat whole unprocessed food. That general guideline, these one-size-fits-all approaches only meet the needs of certain people and they end up uh, abandoning huge sections of, uh, of other folks. And so, you know, it seemed to provide a framework where we could get in and get really granular, really specific and help folks track down exactly what they needed. I remember that Paleo FX talk. I think that was the last time that I went to Paleo FX, actually. Um and you talking about the scientific study that you'd done, I think helping people understand that flexion point is really important because I think a lot of the people that I've encountered at least have that personal experience and they approach it from, you know, being very zealot in the beginning to finding their own template somewhere along the journey. And I think often people 
lose sight of, you know, within that personal bubble of how much impact it really can have on a broader scale. And I think what's fascinating about the approach that you're taking, and I know that a lot of the community is taking, is trying to find that flexibility um, that people need in order to make that, you know, significant health transformation where, you know, perfection isn't the enemy of the good, as you say. And I think um, learning exactly what the enemy is with knowing your own body's needs is a really fascinating way of doing it and also allows for, I personally think, conversation that can maybe encourage somebody to try it. Because if someone says, well, I would do paleo, except I, you know, can't give up this thing, right? There's always this one thing, and it seems to be cheese, Diet Coke, or cream and coffee. (laughs) I don't know. Those three things are always like people's crutches. But, and you know, then if you say to someone, or as I say to someone, well, fine, do everything else except that one thing and see how you feel. And then maybe you'll be motivated eventually to give up that thing. But certainly that's better than nothing at all. And I think what you're doing is is offering people a way to understand how their body works, not just from this concept of, you know, listening to your body, because um, sometimes people don't know how to listen to their body, or sometimes their body doesn't speak loudly enough for them to listen. Right, right. And, and, you know, and, you know, even that listening to your body, it's, it's interesting. This, this gets out in the weeds a little bit, but when Facebook and Twitter started becoming legit phenomena where, you know, people were looking at it and they're like, wow, there's really something to this. And this, the something to it is that this stuff is addictive, you know, they started doing brain imaging on people messing around with Facebook and Twitter and doing these social media platforms and through, you know, a little bit of, of accident at first, they, they figured out ways to make uh, these things really stimulating and, and essentially hyper palatable, like really, you know, it, engaging. And it releases dopamine. It makes you feel good, it, it, at least in the short term. It makes you come back again and again. Uh, the folks that engineer the bulk of our, our food supply, which is essentially junk food, you know, here's a great example. What's the Lay's potato chip tagline? Bet you can't eat just one. And man, I'll, I'll take that bet all day long, you know. But the people manufacturing, uh, you know, things like Lay's potato chips, they understand evolutionary biology. They understand neuroscience. They understand the neuroregulation of appetite at a very deep level. And so these people that have constructed, whether it's social media or hyperpalatable foods, they understand these concepts in a way so that when your 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 body and mind are trying to figure out what you should or shouldn't do, it is completely saying, yes, I want the whole bag of sea salt and vinegar potato chips, because from an evolutionary biology perspective, this would be an awesome find. You know, it, it, the, uh, the, the palate changes, the, the saltiness, the crunchiness, the, the carbs and the fat, the mouthfeel. And so, you know, it, it's interesting because it, you, you make a great point about people needing to get in touch with what their bodies are kind of telling them. But at the same time, we also need to understand that um, uh, the the people who are selling us into the, this almost kind of serfdom, whether it's social media or whether it, it's food, they really know how to lay an amazing trap. And they're very, very good at it. And they make a ton of money you know, implementing it the way that they do. And I'll also throw out there that, you know, luckily this is changing and we, we just kind of alluded to this at the beginning of the show, but for the most part, the mainstream medical 
establishment and particularly modern dietetics, they are still in a complete denial that this ancestral health template, that looking at evolutionary medicine, it is all valuable. So our gatekeepers who are supposed to protect us are completely ignorant of this whole story. And then the people who are profiteering from our suffering are experts at it. And I, I would encourage people to, to think about that a little bit and, and you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, consider how, you know, these these drives, which really served us in the past, can easily be bypassed and, and turned into uh, problems today. Um, so one of my um, parts of my history that brought me to paleo was a history of morbid obesity and food addiction and binge eating disorder. And it's been one of those interesting things where adopting a paleo diet you know, it got me through most of it, right? So um, I don't have anywhere near as often a compulsion to eat. Um, I still have uh, struggles with portion control. So if I try to eat intuitively, that whole eat until you're full thing, that doesn't work for me because what my body thinks is full is what somebody else thinks is about to throw up because they've overeaten so much. Mm -hmm. And my, and my body goes, yeah, that's great. Thanks. <laughs> like, I just love feeling like I'm about to explode. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting thing because I think so much of this idea of eating intuitively is colored by our individual histories with these hyper palatable, addictive, and completely, you know, nutrient depleted foods. And I, you know, I'm five and a half years into this and, you know, I still like, sure. Now when I have a compulsion to, to binge eat, I'll eat half a watermelon. And that's not the same thing as eating a gallon of ice cream, mm -hmm. but it's still, you know, it's still a lingering struggle with that behavior. And that comes from, you know, they, they sort of think now that um, the development of food addiction and binge eating disorder sort of is opportunistic. It comes from engaging with these hyperpalatable foods um, regularly. And eventually it sort of turns into this, this vicious cycle and this, this true psychological problem. And I don't think it's as simple as saying, you know, well, if you just eat, you know, whole foods as close to their natural source as possible, avoid those, you know, super tricksy uh, combinations of, you know, carbs and fat and salt, um, you know, avoid a lot of sugars. I, I don't think it's as simple for many people to just say, cut all those things out and then everything falls into place, which is why I think that what you've done in Wired to Eat by giving people not just those types of like broad strokes um, guidelines towards getting out of that cycle of, of food addiction, but also really concrete strategies for identifying trigger foods. What you know, what foods are are working for your body and what foods aren't. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, this aspect of your book that is the seven day carb test, because this to me is just like, Oh, I, I mean, I, I, wow. Like I, it's, it's to me, it's, I guess it's a really simple idea, but it's also revolutionary at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's kind of funny because there's actually a lot going on with that, 
seven day carb test and the the a lot that's going on there starts be it, earlier it, it within the context of the book i the the first part of the book is really trying to help people understand how they're wired to eat, the neuroregulation of appetite, digestion, sleep, you know, all this stuff and how all of it ultimately kind of ties back into the, the neuroregulation of appetite and how we eat enough to support our activity and a healthy body composition, but not too much. And then when we in really making the case, hey, it's not your fault understand that this stuff is difficult, but here's, here's how we're going to, you know, tackle this process. And part of that process tackling involves a triage system that helps you understand where you are in the insulin sensitivity, insulin resistant spectrum. And there's lots and lots of variables that go into the, the neuroregulation of appetite, leptin, ghrelin, PYY. I mean, the, the acronyms and lists of stuff go on and on and on, but, but insulin management is, Maybe one of the things that we can turn, we can control that lever in a pretty profound way, and it has knock-on effects that are really significant with our health at large, and also with governing the neuroregulation of appetite. So, I go through a, a triage system where we start with subjective elements, like how do you feel between meals? What's your cognitive status? Are you foggy-headed or clear-headed? You know, how long can you go between meals before you? You kind of, you know, auger into a mountainside and, and you have some problems. Mm -hmm. And then we start getting more granular and specific where we ask some questions about like your your hip to waist measurement, your uh, A1C. I have some very specific blood work that I recommend. And a lot of it is an outgrowth of what we track in the clinic. Like we use an LPIR score, a lipoprotein insulin resistance score to establish insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance in an individual. And, you know, historically people have used things like a fasting insulin or like a triglyceride HDL ratio. And those things are valuable up to a point, but they, they have some serious limitations. And we've found particularly in, in shift work individuals, police, military, fire, medical professionals, um, they, if we look at that triglyceride HDL ratio, uh, it, it it misses 60, 40 to 60 percent of people who are actually insulin resistant and significantly so and also tend to have disordered lipoproteins. And the lipoproteins are the things that actually carry the cholesterol molecules around the body. So we use that LPIR score, A1C, fructosamine, and then some standard stuff too, like fasting insulin, total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol. And we, we stick all that stuff together and we help people to figure out where they are in that insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance spectrum. And then we jump them into effectively what's a paleo intervention, 30 days, uh, you, you know, largely whole unprocessed foods, more or less out of the, the basic paleo template. And after folks have motored through that, then we're in a situation where ideally our gut health has improved. Um, the kind of the appetite control has hopefully improved to some degree. But now I want people to kind of stress test the system and and really kick the tires on on what type of latitude they have. And that's where the seven day carb test comes in. And I recommend that folks have, use a battery of different carbohydrate sources. It could be white rice, white potatoes, corn tortillas. I, I really do make a strong case in the book to remain gluten free or to at least mm. really test that gluten avoidance story. And, you know, people whine and moan about that. And, you know, if I could figure out a way to get people to eat French bread and drink beer and be skinny and healthy, 
I would sell more books than Harry Potter. You know, it's like <laughs> I, I get it that it's a buzzkill. I wouldn't recommend it if it didn't matter, you know, and it just makes me want to either pull my hair out or wring people's necks. It's like, dude, I, I get that this stuff tastes amazing, but I'm trying to like save your life, you know? So, so I have that caveat in there. If you want to play with gluten, go for it. But I really, you know, I'd try to hump your knee to at least pull it out for a while and then reintroduce it and see how you do. But this carb test involves 50 grams of effective carbohydrate. You eat it first thing in the morning. Ideally you wake up, get ready to get your day going. And, and the reason why I set it up like this is it's as close to kind of a scientifically controlled intervention as what we could get. If people do the test later in the day, we don't know how much exercise they've had, how much coffee they've had. You know, there's all these variables. So we try to, to you know, narrow all that down. And folks consume this carbohydrate. They check the blood glucose at two hours. You can certainly check your fasting blood glucose level. You could check it at one hour, but it's not 100% necessary. It's definitely more work. And so I try to make it as simple as possible, which is that two-hour point. And if at two hours your blood glucose is above about 115 uh, milligrams per, per deciliter, then we've got a problem. Like we, we need to consider that this carbohydrate source isn't a good option for you. And so we either need to jettison that option reduce the amount of it that we have, or maybe stick it into a, a post-workout period. Like if one were to go hiking and then have a gluten-free Oreo at the end of the session. Just saying, just yeah, saying. Yeah, just, just as an example. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, you know, that that's kind of the, the story with the seven-day carb test. But the that triage session is really important for helping to understand what is going on. Because, you know, uh, my wife and I did this seven day carb test and posted it on, on social media. And, you know, everybody that is into kind of the low carb scene was like, your wife has craft pattern number three, her blood sugar is lower at the end than it was at the beginning. And I'm like, dude, there's a 10 to 15% variation in these tests. One, the, and so like she would start off at like 82 and finish at 78. And these guys are, are thinking that there's like a hypoglycemic event here. And, you know, there's more error in in the system than there is, you know, uh, spread between the two numbers. So, it, you know, there was some kind of wacky stuff like that. But the way that we can sift through a lot of that is if we have a person that is clearly insulin resistant from that LPIR score, if we see some disordered A1C and fructosamine, and we're seeing, say, like some elevated blood glucose levels and or some what appears to be rebound hypoglycemia, which is confirmed by the the subjective stuff, how do you feel between these meals, then we're able to stitch together a very consistent story. If we have someone who is super insulin sensitive with the LPIR score, it looks like their blood sugar settled lower at the end of the test than what it was at the beginning, but their cognition is great, their physical performance is great, and it's like, okay, we you know, we have an artifact of the testing methodology. We don't have pathology going on here. Okay, I have so many questions. Um, yeah, so so there's a lot going on there. Like yeah. people, it, like uh, I I played around with this stuff a lot in the clinic and uh, monkeyed around with it with a lot of people. So it, it looks super simple, but I, I'm I'm honestly pretty tickled with it. Like when you take the screening at the beginning and overlay that with what you learn from the seven day carb test, it's a remarkably informative uh, uh, study, and it doesn't take that long to do it. So, okay, where am I going to go with this? Um, go, tying back to the study from a, a couple of years ago that 
showed that different people could react so differently to different types of carbohydrates. Did you see that in the people that you were uh, using as guinea pigs? Can I? Yeah. Guinea pigs? Yes. Yeah. And you, I, I know, can... you, you guys probably know a few of the folks like uh, Eva Twardokins. She's a two-time Olympian, six-time giant slalom world champion. And she's super fit, has been fit her whole life. Like she's basically been a professional athlete her whole life. And it was so interesting, like white rice and white potatoes. She had beautiful blood glucose response. I mean, it barely got above like 90 or 95 or something like that. And uh, lentils, lentils, which are mainly protein, mainly fiber. You've got to eat an ungodly amount of it to get 50 grams of effective carbohydrate. I think at two hours, she was at 189 with lentils. And she, she rejected. Wow. And what, what I think is going on, it, it, it sure as heck looks like it. But yet when she ate white rice and white potatoes, she looked wonderful. And so, um, you know, what, what I think was possibly going on there was an immunogenic response. Yeah. Uh, you know, FODMAPs or something ended up, you know, angering her immune system. And there were some inflammatory cytokines released and that pinged the adrenals and the adrenals pinged the liver and so the blood glucose response uh, was probably more hepatic or liver driven than actually from the food. And, and this was one of the really interesting things that they saw in that Weizmann Institute study. Uh, one food in particular, hummus, which I mean, OK, I'm, I'm the paleo guy, but, you know, hummus is protein, fiber and fat mainly like there's hardly any carbs in it. But about 50 percent of the people in the study had remarkably high blood glucose response and I, the Weizmann Institute people were really forthcoming with their time. Like I ended up talking with uh, five or six of the primary investigators in the writing of this book. And I asked them, do you think that this was an immunogenic response? And they said, we didn't test for that. The next round of study that we're doing is going to going to look at that to answer that question. But almost certainly, yes, because I mean, where did the carbohydrate come from? I mean, there was more there was more carbohydrate in circulation than came out of the food. So it had to come from somewhere and that somewhere would be the liver. And the reason why would be some sort of an immunogenic response. It's fascinating. It, it, it's super interesting. And, you know, it's really cool because this, this, uh, you know, we've long thought that just high or low glycemic load foods were the, the trick to managing all this stuff and it worked up to a point, but it, it was another one of those things where it just, it seemed like a magnificent idea and it really is. But then the practical application, it didn't always work that well. And the, the potential there is that, you know, even some foods like lentils or cashews or, or, you know, I mean, e even cheese and stuff like that, these things can produce a, a really remarkably high blood glucose response in some people due to this immunogenic response. But again, this is a, a pretty slick way that we can monitor all of this and, you know, kind of ferret out what, what foods we're going to do better with and what ones we, we might do better to, to avoid. I just want to say that it's genius, the connection of the autoimmune inflammation causing um, insulin or blood sugar reactions. And I think you know, as we learn more and as Sarah finds more studies and articles and, and writes about it and um, all of all of the community puts effort into this, I think it really will, I hope, reach an audience beyond just paleo. Because like you're saying this, the people that you were talking to that did this study that didn't test for um, an 
immune response of some kind. I mean, that they literally have all the information they have to test that. So all it takes now is for, like they said, the next cycle to run that and then to put those connections together and, and to then share that with the entire medical community of um, food allergy being applicable from an immune reaction perspective, which we're all drinking that paleo Kool-Aid already. But I think that there right. are so many people who are incredibly, incredibly sick with who genuinely do not believe that food is the trigger and not because they don't want to, or they can't, but because, you know, they're the people in their life aren't giving them the information they need to put that together. And, you know, I, I know plenty of people even in my own life who wouldn't listen to me say it. So I just think that that it just sounds like you're making a really magic sauce right there that, um, could could lead to some profound results. Yeah, I, I sure hope so. And you know, I, I, and Sarah, you've talked about this stuff before. We we've I I have talked about this stuff for a long time. But you know, a lot of these immunogenic responses they don't fall cleanly into an allergic response. Yeah. They don't fall cleanly into an autoimmune response. But it's like, man, there's mast cell activation. Wow, there's upregulation and and. Uh, you know, uh, these these cells that are usually only responsible for clearing parasites. And, you, you know, you get this wacky stuff, but it's nothing that is so far out of bounds that it fits a classic, you know, diagnosis of, of you know, uh, uh, leukemia or, you know, uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. But there's clearly something going on. And, you know, it's just we haven't... Um, opened up the scope for there to be some some stuff that fits in the the cracks between allergy and autoimmunity but it's it's happening and you know it's re it is really interesting that there appears to be a a really important piece to this if we want to either avoid it or fix it is we need some blood glucose control and it looks like that blood glucose control feeds back into you know not just insulin and all the inflammatory stuff that that goes on with insulin but at that gut microbiome level, which I would say that that is maybe the more profound influencer when we think about lipopolysaccharide and its tendency to induce insulin resistance, liver toxicity, and and elevate lipoproteins. So, you know, it's a it, it is a fascinating thing that you know it could be as you know possibly one of the most simple things and most effective things we could do is just really be fastidious about maintaining a, a normal blood glucose level and normal being at a, a from an ancestral health perspective the the benchmarks that i apply in the book are way more conservative than mainstream medicine and they're actually based off of some uh, there weren't a ton of them but there were some studies where they took hunter gatherers and pre-agricultural people and they gave them oral glucose tolerance tests and these folks and, and these these people are not big people like they're they're like you know 5 foot tall there there's not a lot of mass there but even Though they're small, they would take 100 grams of, of glucose and they, they wouldn't see blood sugar levels get much above about 95 to 105. And that is just jaw-droppingly good. And so I, I fudged the numbers up a little bit and I, I kind of put my my upper level at about 115 uh, milligrams per deciliter. But that is super conservative compared to mainstream medicine. Like they don't even start batting an eye until you're – you're up around, you know, 180, 200 or something after an oral glucose tolerance test. And then they'll start saying, well, yeah, you're kind of insulin resistant, but we'll keep an eye on it. And the keeping an eye on it is just letting it turn into full-blown diabetes. 
I had um, gestational diabetes in my first pregnancy. And I was um, directed in my diabetes education that I took. Um, I was measuring one hour glucoses instead of two. But, you know, it was in that range, right? It was 140 at one hour, 120 at two hours. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, that was for me, that was my direction of like, you don't want a 15 pound baby was the, uh, entire like motivation, which I, I really didn't. So that it worked. Um, and you know, here's, you know, that was for them, even this was 10 years ago now, what was sort of considered ideal. And I feel like you've taken that and kind of even you've pulled back enough so that you've got that little, you know, testing variation wiggle room kind of built into mm. your numbers. But that to me, I mean, I look at those numbers and I go, that makes complete sense. Like that's, that's what is the upper limit of ideal. You, you don't want to go over that. You go over that and that's where you start to see dysfunction. I mean, those limits are set as guidelines for diabetics for a reason. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And, and you know, those, those limits get pushed up constantly because our population at large is sick. And so what's normal just keeps elevating, but it, it, it's far, far from healthy. And, you know, I don't just want to, you know, reduce my, my cardiovascular or neurodegenerative disease potential by a few percentage points. I want to like take it out and put a bullet in its head. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm going to die from something other than degenerative disease. You know, it'll yeah. probably be my Italian wife burying me in a shallow grave at some point, but I I'm, I'm way more okay with that than I am losing my marbles and, and being a drag on my family. I have it on record that you're okay with her taking care of you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, she's much smarter than I am, so I really don't have a lot of options in this whole story. I just live by by her good grace anyway, so yeah. Does she ever listen to your podcasts? Very rarely, because she thinks I am absolutely <laughs> full of feces, so very, very, very rarely. All right. Well, I think that we have a um, ton more to talk to you about, and I know that we're kind of hitting our listeners limit of uh, commute time or walking around the neighborhood or doing the dishes as it may be. So um, can we snag you for an additional topic? And um, I promise to remind people where they can find you and your new New York Times bestselling book. Um, if you'll, if you'll stick with us, maybe for one. Absolutely. One. I'm in. <laughs> So Rob Wolf was so generous with his time with us that we decided um, really to take advantage of him and his, his generosity um, and tackle two really different topics. And uh, we ended up recording way more than can fit into one episode. So what we've done is we've broken up Rob's interview into part one and part two. So as we wrap up part one, um, you know, we just want to thank Rob again for his generosity with his time, his amazing uh, brain and his amazing voice in the paleo movement and uh, hang tight because we'll be back next week. I'm looking forward to the euphemisms to come. Oh, there will be some euphemisms. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal.
Okay, seriously, the cat might actually eat me if I don't feed him soon. There's, like, Matt sent me the study years ago that said, like, cats are the only pets that will eat their owners if their owners die. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Dogs will starve to death beside their dead owners. Exactly. Yeah. Cats, hey, why let all that meat go to waste? Yeah, so I don't even think that our cats would wait. I think they would <laughs> take care of business. I, I, so the, the kitten who is now close to full grown, she, she does occasionally like to try to take bites out of my toes. Um, but it's, she's very, she's obsessed with the faucet. Do you have a cat, a faucet obsessed cat? I do. She wants me to just run the faucet for her all the time. And I'm like, this is waste water. I can't just run this for you. Like, so then she's like opportunistic. So if I'm like brushing my teeth and she'll like run to the sink and then she just, she gets, yeah, she gets really upset if I turn it off and she wants to bite my toes. Yes. Yes. When I wake up in the morning and I walk to the bathroom, no matter where the cat was in the house, like it could have been across the house in the basement. It hears me wake up and it knows that I'm the only one that will run the faucet for it. So it like bolts across the house and is somehow in the sink before I shut the bathroom door. So. Yes. Yes. That is, that is the same in my house. I think we're good now. Uh, yeah, you sounds awesome. So cool. How long have we got you for, Rob? Oh, well, how long would you like me? <laughs> well, it's getting um, inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, we're 15 seconds in here. So there was a little bit of bribing with gluten free Oreo cookies, which we will not mention on the podcast. But Perfect. there was a little bit if you can get to the car. There may be a gluten free Oreo cookie there for you. So Perfect. Perfect. I like it. I like it. That, you know, when you've got a work output like that, a little uh, gluten-free Oreo cookie is probably not the worst thing in the world. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.